Welcome to episode eight of Two Pre-Sales in a Pod. So we've got myself, Adam Freeman, and with me, Don Carmichael. So hi, Hello. Don. Yeah, hi there. Yeah. Well, eight episodes in. Wow. I know. It flies by. Um, so we're here today to chat value engineers view of discovery. So we're rounding off our discovery mini-series today, aren't we, Don? Um, and I think it's important. We, Myself and Don have been chatting about this over the last feels like a few months really and I think we were quite keen to get to this um, yep. episode and it's really all about how a value engineer would look at discovery and why it's important that we embrace those kind of ideas in our discovery process so to you Don what what do we mean by value engineering I suppose is a, a sensible place to start isn't it mm, yeah so maybe one step above that is this idea of splitting out value discovery away from demo discovery and away from sales qualification or sales discovery and um, you know it's probably you know it's good to split these things into kind of three you know salespeople have you know their view of discovery is um things like you know budget authority need timing you know they're looking at things that are, are aimed at sales discovery what's going to get you through each gate in in an opportunity um demo discovery you know we've talked a lot about that in previous episodes about what differentiates that you know we're looking for um as a question what would convince them that we can achieve the outcomes with the minimal risk so what do we need to show them uh, to prove to them that we can we can do that so they can emotionally attach to a future that includes our solution so but separate to that, or maybe in parallel with all of that, this idea about value discovery, which is centered around a question, which is, well, how will they decide to fund this project and, and also measure its success? Um, so uh, some people talk about, what is it, the golden three, which is, you know, is it going to increase revenue, uh, decrease cost? Um, and maybe sometimes like decrease risk. I, I always add two more in, which has got um, something like decreased compliance and maybe um, increase that agility, which people will will pay for. And um, these things are kind of split into things like tangible that are called tangibles and intangibles. And uh, we have to introduce that Adam is a qualified accountant. So uh, when we start talking about value and <laughs> tangibles and tangibles, capexes, nopexes, I, I, I bow <laughs> to someone who's an expert and wouldn't even and uh, yeah try to <laughs> to actually um, I feel like uh, booing prove that I know more about that. Yeah. Podcast right now, the booing. Like, I'm not another accountant. Like yeah. that. <laughs> no. So so get down to the the term value engineer. So value engineers are interesting be um so larger like enterprise companies uh, tend to have a, a a separate role which is someone who's a value engineer that you they, they get brought in either right at the beginning because they do we maybe talk about this these exercises called that um outside in analysis looking at a you know a new strategic account and and kind of you know looking at the kind of year ends that kind of thing um ceo reports you know any, any kind of lots and lots of online hoover there's lots and lots of online information you can pull together you know before let's say you want to look at a, you know a really big strategic account so they can do that work but typically you're bringing them in a lot later in a, a sales cycle you know if it is a specific role called a value engineer and um, basically you know when it's very well qualified and you're down to the, the people of emotionally you know clients emotionally committed to this but now this needs to be properly justified or because it needs to go to you know a financial decision that's probably going to maybe go a board level and and one of the things you've got to put in context with all of this is that um 
you've got to stop if you stop if you think oh you know have they got budget for um uh you know the investing in uh, making commitment to so the subscriptions or the consumer you know consumption wherever it is the our revenue model they are however we're doing it so it, we have to get away from thinking that that exists in isolation on it on its own and this is you know, the financial decision that's made around that because remember even subscriptions the, this is a lot of money these days it's not something you can hide under like a you know an operational budget which is maybe some again something we'll come on to with the old capex versus opex uh, discussion about how you hide subscriptions you know th this is a lot of money people are in investing in there's a, a big commitment and um, so you, so when you're talking about this it isn't kind of a, if you've got a budget it's companies have a choice in where they're going to place funds and it could be that you're not just competing against a competitor or no decision you're competing against and um, should we open up a new um, warehouse yeah yeah you know uh, so so that's why you know which is a very different thing because people aren't looking at you know at board level they may they're just looking at what's the best return we may get into things things called net present value internal rates of return you know and, and the simple versions of it which are kind of payback and um, people are looking at you know very sophisticated models sometimes about how is this how do we get the money back what's what's the ultimate return on investment um, of making this investment and they might look at well what's the best use of we've got some funds we could either do this by these subscriptions or we could do something completely different and if it's a you know owner operated <laughs> you know well, if it's owner of the family like, yeah. well, should we buy a new boat or should we buy uh, salesforce yeah, i always call it the villa in spain rule if you can't exactly. give like, a really good reason not to buy that villa in spain and buy your software it's right but the other the other side of that i think though, i was just thinking as you were saying there is all software now is subscription. everything we consume is subscription not just software mm. everything has moved to that subscriptions model and so it doesn't stand out it's normalized that when these investment decisions are appreciated there's no slipping this under budgets and under spend reviews it's now okay well i get it's ten thousand pounds a month but what's our what's our contract commitment so it's now across multiple years and there are, people are also looking for certainty of return so it's not just is there a return on investment that's great and i can understand if i buy a warehouse there is a a, a pretty tangible return on that warehouse because i know what i'm getting into Whereas with software, and maybe it's a new piece of software, or maybe something I haven't got a system for, it's a little bit more subjective. It's a little bit relying on certain variables coming together, and it's very intangible. And I think that's the real reason why I love this concept of value engineer's view of discovery process, because you've got to flip our traditional model, in a sense, on its head a little bit. You've got to pre-prove outcomes, and you've got to give certainty of returns and a confidence that, not only you can deliver a return, but you're also the right people to deliver that return. And it really puts the role of the pre-sales person firmly in the spotlight, doesn't it? I, I, absolutely. And one of the things we talked about is, so we're talking about a role called value engineers, but um, really probably, you know, mid-sized to larger companies may have a separate role. It, it may be for, for the listeners, you've never actually heard of this role before. Mm. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is that really it's, mo it's normally kind of pre-sales are having to do this role in parallel and um, and if you go back to the act of discovery it's you, you know we've talked before about there being separate uh, discovery tracks that are happening you know sales discovery which is it's constant all the way through the opportunity constantly as you go through each gate and um, you know they have to especially um things like uh, the sandler 
selling system is mm. very much about you know, qualify each gate, which is can we still win this deal? So they're constantly doing discovery and qualification to do that. Uh, demo discovery is for a purpose. You know, and that could all be in parallel, you know, as you get opportunities and as it's the right time to spend the cost of sell to do the demos. And um, value discovery, again, it doesn't may not happen just at the end. It may be that you're doing it as you're going along. And and if you're doing any kind of discovery, you may get the opportunity to ask those kind of questions and mix it in with the other uh, you know types of discovery. So these things can be three separate things or they could all be in parallel um, and you kind of what you need to know is is this an opportunity <laughs> when I'm talking to this person is this an opportunity to find out something extra something that would help us build a value proposition so it, it sometimes for a lot of people it's not a separate role at all this is just part of yet another thing that pre-sales need to include in their armory you know it sometimes it blows my mind what we're asked to do all the different things we're supposed to excel at, you know, this kind of value engineering, all the people skills, or you know, industry understanding, domain experience, you know, never mind the technology, but, you know, but we are the ones who can create credibility, kind of, you know, rapport, authenticity, and get the opportunity to ask the questions about how, you know, how is this going to be justified? Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the role of the tip where value engineering is a separate role, a lot of the um, a lot of the people in those roles have come from a very consultative background, yes, haven't they? They absolutely. are they are people that have have done the implementation, that have got that level of experience of realization of gains, and that's the important thing in this. They are they've got hundreds and hundreds of golden stories, but they are very very good at articulating how an investment will, with a level of certainty, return an investment. And I think you're absolutely right, Don. It's for me, it's a state of mind of pre-sales now that right yes. through the sales cycle, we have to embrace those ideas. So if, if you're lucky enough to work in a company where you have some value engineers, go chat to those guys, you know, go, go chat to them, shadow them on a meeting, learn from them, because I, I think this will be a really important skill moving forward in pre-sales. And if you've got that in your company, great, you're, you're all, the, all the better for it. And if you haven't, maybe follow some people on LinkedIn, maybe look for websites, look if there's a forum, um, you know, just chat to people because I, I think it's such a valuable skill moving forward, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I first, I suppose, came across people who, who had a value engineering role when I was at SAP, mm. um, and it was kind of linked to pre-sales, but you're absolutely right. The, the, the value engineers tended to come from like the big four consultancies, right. um, and they had a you know, very different and more sophisticated view, I suppose, than the world I'd, I'd come from. And I did, I learned a huge amount from them and um, because they were so used to dealing at a you know like a line of business a c level and mm. um, and the kind of conversations that happen at that level and you know sophisticated views of how you do financial justification you know the, the it can get very sophisticated you know people who've done mbas and um, will come along and talk about we mentioned a thing called net present value which um can get quite complicated yeah, but it, it's essentially the idea that um you know the, there's a time value to money which is you know the money that you've got now the investment you, know, that you have available now is worth more than some point in the future which yeah. you can sometimes be a bit difficult to get your head around it but it's, it's essentially a, a company will have a thing called an internal rate of return which is that they might say, you know, per year, any investment that we spend, it should get us, let's say, 8% because, yeah. 
you know, why should we spend that money? Because we might, we could have put it in a, I was going to say a bank account, but <laughs> bank accounts won't give you 8% at the moment. <laughs> but, and let's just say another form of investment. There, there used to be a story, was it GE, General Electric? It used to be a story, I mean, this is going back maybe like 20 years, that they made way more money, you know, massive industrial conglomerate made way more money from the investments they made and, you know, and hired more, much, many more um, accountants than he did engineers, be, be just basically because in the manufacturing world, you couldn't get, you know, you, you couldn't meet a lot of this kind of net present value. It was just, it was more sensible to put your money in investments and they made a lot more money that way. Money makes money. So as long as you understand the value, so net present value is this idea of saying, well, a spend in five years, if I commit to that now, lock that price in now, actually, £10,000 in today's money, if you fast forward five years, £10,000 in five years because of inflation, relatively, is a, is a lot cheaper. So you, you would, some, that's why there's things like discounting for longer contracts. And that's why a customer might want a longer contract because if there's, no, if there's a price freeze for the duration of that contract, I'll happily lock that in now because to me, if I was to go to market in three years versus five, well, those two years, I'm effectively paying less than, than I am now in real terms. So that's why um, that's why they people do that, and they look at these discounted cash flows, and they look at Don's exactly right is looking at the internal rate of return. How risk averse or risk um, accepting is that company? Because a very progressive digital company who wants innovation and change will happily have quite a high internal rate of return. They will look to seek maximum gains, accepting that there's a level of risk to do that versus someone maybe who's more established might have a much lower expectation of returns, but they will want greater certainty. So you, I think part of the discovery is understanding how risk averse is that prospect, how open to um, gains, how, how much you're going to have to prove that, because that is going to come back to bite you in the demo if you don't understand that. Because if you're talking to a real risk averse company and you throw out some big numbers and they say, prove that, <laughs> that's going to get uncomfortable, right? You can one way, interesting way of testing some of this is ask is really um, asking them about some recent purchases they've made or you know recent subscriptions because what you may find from doing that is they haven't done too many because what tends to happen is the status quo you know they they just anything they look at never gets over the hurdle of uh, financial justification. Yeah, yeah, and and how many deals every single person listening to this podcast will have had this at some point where you've had a deal where you think this is great, the deal fits, the software fits, everything's just in harmony, goes to board, goes quiet, and then something comes back and the deal never happens, it just never goes through. And that's because you can prove all the solutions in the world, but if you don't ultimately prove value, that's yeah. what the people signing the checks are looking for. And someone told me once upon a time, they said, Adam, you can sell to all the people in, in that boardroom, but the most important person to convince is the FD, because he's got the checkbook. And it's, it's true, you, you've got to prove value, you've got to prove investment and that you're worthy of investment, which is why you, know, you see the rise of, of account management, cross-sell, of, of upsell within your base is so important because you've got to then also think, well, if, if this is new business and we're onboarding a new customer and we're pre-proving value, we've got to deliver on that. And the rise of the outcome engineer, which we'll talk about, I have no doubt at some point, because... Yeah. If we help a company realize its gains and then we have tangible proof that we've done that, once that customer is then within, a, um, within the customer base and they've realized those gains, they're a lot more open to investment because 
you've helped them achieve the level of gains that you promised when they were a new a new company as well so it all it all pays forward doesn't it yeah 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 it does yeah yeah so um i actually slight tangent here i was going to say this kind of feeds into why you know when companies have got a thing called a technical win you know oh, for yeah. kind of pre-sales why that can be quite an uncomfortable thing because if if you think about it that leads to a story that um okay we focused on demo discovery or you know or the, or the fact that you know technically we have a um you know differentiated solution we've proved that but you're almost saying but we didn't do any value discovery because yeah you know it's not enough to have a technical win that will not get you over the line um and you've got to be why you've got to be really careful with this is because you know understand something called a technical win but if you start using that in a blame game you know this thing it can all go wrong you know like well hey technically we won the deal well we've just spent the last whatever it is 15 minutes talking about all the other stuff that goes on that you know that you need to have an input into that that will actually close the deal yeah so don is there any any nuggets any impact you've got for how you can start to build this into your discovery process does it need a different framework does it need a different type of question how do you because i think everyone on the call who's in a pre-sales capacity and i know by the way we also have a lot of product managers and people like that listen to the podcast which is fantastic so welcome um but we're very very good at drawing out you know statement or or or, or problem or challenge and we're kind of okay at understanding how to relate that to software and that could be an industry challenge or a specific organization challenge how does that differ from the kind of information you need to capture to start this value engineering mindset and i'm going to call it mindset from here on in um what, what how do you need to get it into your discovery process mm. the, uh, this i think is digging continually for impact you know how do people articulate what the situation how would you measure things you know because if you if you measure things get metrics for things that's going to help you on the journey to turning that into a kind of value that isn't always the case because we did talk about something called tangible and intangible so what tangible means is something that it's easier to so let's say um so before we've talked about a kind of like a basic discovery map which is the idea that you have a hierarchy looks like a um uh, it looks like an organization chart, but so at the top, you've got something which is a corporate goal. You know, what's the company trying to do? You know, in two years, they want to have, you know, 20% higher revenue or something, maybe. So you've got a corporate goal. Then you have below that, you have key business requirements. Below that is the proof points, the outcome points, which is, you know, the impact and metrics that measure where you are now and where you want to be in the future. And then finally below that are things called are the, the functional pains, or basically that's the tech that you can show people. And then you can have a conversation and go, we've shown you this technical um, uh, uh, functionality solution because it overcomes this functional pain, which will allow you to uh, achieve this impact, uh, this outcome, this definition of success, which will give you this key business requirement, which gives you this um, corporate goal. Um, so when we talked that there was a thing in the middle there, which was this kind of impact thing. Um, and if you can, so tangibles would be, this is increase, you know, something you can measure. So this is, this takes a number of days. So you can, days is good because you can, you can multiply that by something called a full-time equivalent, yeah. which is, um, so here's, here's a top trick is take a typical uh, salary and double it. Mm. Because that's basically, so what does a, what does a, a typical person cost? Be kept very careful asking about questions like this. <laughs> but you have to do this because you've got to find what the costs are. Costs are going to be a lot more convincing than uh, revenue claims. 
And it's got to be realistic, hasn't it? Because you know, indeed, geographies and different markets they are. But I mean, I've I've had this before. Where I've had to ask that kind of question. I just said, can you give me a normalized rate? You know, I'm not asking for yeah. the people in the room. I'm just saying, could you give me an arbitrary figure? You know, if I say twenty grand a year, is that wildly different? Am I forty grand a year? Is that too much? Like, it doesn't matter if you're through a few thousand pounds out, but you've got to be ballpark yeah. for that for yeah. that industry and that that company for sure. And that's got to come from the client or, or at oh, least they have to agree. And you've got to record that that person said, yes, I, that's what I believe. Yeah. So, um, so if you, you, you're capturing this kind of like, uh, impact, um, now you could be doing this as you're going along. Um, because they may say, right, the, uh, we've got this key business requirement, which is, is basically we're trying to reduce the operating costs as we increase size of the business. And they might tell you something like, well, it, and you, you could, force the question and say well how long does it take at the moment let's say they're digitizing a manual process and they say oh it takes 10 days at the moment we want to get it down to three days well the obvious at that point the obvious thing would be you need to absolutely record that because that's going to feed into your kind of you know value proposition because you could say yeah what is this what is the normalized rate typically what is it costing what is 10 days of time cost per you know, whatever it is they're doing. And then what is three days cost you? And there's a difference there. So that's a cost saving. Cost savings are, uh, I, I think, are emotionally a lot easier to sell than revenue increases. And we talked about there being five things, which is um, it, it gets also gets a bit more challenging things like uh, reducing risk because you have to find a, ta- you know, is that an intangible or an intangible is something you can't put a monetary value on or you find it harder to do or you have to find some other way of agreeing what an intangible actually means. So um, I think I do, you're the account, but a classic one of intangible is, is that things like um, uh, ongoing business, not ongoing business, something like intellectual property. Uh, well, could you can you actually put a price on that? Yeah, so it's like something like a website. Well, how do you put a price mm. realistically on a website or a piece of IP? You know, it's it's very very difficult to do that because essentially the the website, if you're lucky, is a revenue stream. But really, how do you quantify if it isn't generating revenue? How do you quantify that? So, intangibles are very very difficult. So, you know, it might be contracts as well. Actually, if there's no set return, it's it's worth what someone thinks it's worth at the end of the day. Yeah. So, and that's a real, that's a challenge because, you know, risk increasing compliance and mm. these, these things you've really, it's a, it, you've got to have a conversation about, you know, about risk and, it, you know, things like, uh, you know, digital compliance and risk and, you know, things like GDPR, you know, uh, being hacked, all this kind of thing. The, all you can, you know, none of that. They, that's um, what do they call it? A hygiene cost to a company. Yeah. And, and it's not going to create any cost. revenue. Yeah. It's the risk of what would happen if if you got if it went wrong. Yeah, and and I'd say the same as well. If you sell a high profile deal or you or you do it, it's the reputation risk as well. So it's the risk mm-hmm. to. And I, I've had this um, with a prospect where they said, um, "Believe everything," and said, "You know, Adam, what if we can't execute on this for our customers? That damages our reputation. So they would levy a value that was." Yes they were potentially going to lose that on revenue um, if if we couldn't deliver on what, what we said. So from your customer's perspective, I never thought about that until the first customer articulated that to me. They're always balancing up the cost of the new software with if this went wrong and at a minimum we got absolutely no return. Well, we're no worse off than we are, but we've got no return either. But actually there is a cost to us because there's a cost for us to put things right with our customers for our business. You know, it's that knock on effect through the supply chain. So I think always have to be cognizant that value isn't always value just between you and the customer. It's the knock-on effect 
to the wider business network as well. Absolutely. And even things like retention of staff, you know, if, if, if a system is put in and the staff don't embrace it and, and adopt it, well, actually that's going to cost a value because I've got to onboard a lot of new staff. I've got to recruit, I've got a turnover in staff. That's going to, that's going to come with a, a, a value outcome. So there's so many tangible and intangible Indeed. values and risks and, and costs that you have to consider as part of a, you know, an overall process of, are we actually going to sign on that dotted line docu-sign nowadays, but um, actually part, <laughs> you know, part with somebody, no, no one signs on a dotted line anymore. The days of a nice fountain pen are gone. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, you can have a nice stylus instead of your iPad, but yeah, once you've digitally signed, you're taking on a burden and that burden for the customer is all of those tangible and intangible costs. They only chip away at that burden once they realize you know, those in those costs individually, which could take a long time, couldn't it? Yeah. I've heard, um, is it business sustainability? I've heard, you know, people use, use that and put intangibles around it. Um, so um, kind of moving on, if it was, so if value discovery, value engineering is a kind of separate role, and we kind of said that um, you know, sometimes the right thing to do is just to actually do this quite late in the sales process, because it, it costs, it's a lot of costs of sale list to do this kind of yeah. kind of research. And, and people who are dedicated value engineers, let's be honest, are, are actually quite expensive people. Um, and and also there's this argument of um, what does it say before you talk about price so parts of what in our world you want to talk about price right at the beginning just get it over and done with you know some things especially if part of your business is like product-led growth self-service just get it out there right at the beginning this is what the price is and other other you know other business um views of the world you wouldn't want to talk about price until right at the end because first of all you want to prove value and mm. um, before you shock them <laughs> yeah <laughs> but but where well, you want to have a value conversation first is that you know look at the value we're going to bring to your business and therefore you can see that the, the price then you know comparing the two you can see the returns you know, so in isolation, if you tell them what the price was at the beginning, you wouldn't have got this far in the sales conversation. But if you can prove the value first and then do price, and that tends to be, if you do that a lot later in the sales process, um, you know, then you're going to be more successful. But then you need to, yeah, then you need to kind of make a specific investment in this. So people who kind of do value engineering, they, there are actually tools that some of them use, like um they've actually got like a value engineering database and you can go to third parties. Some consultancies have got this. Um, and the idea is, is that these kind of semi-anonymized uh, databases where they've got data points um, and the idea or the ideal would be, you could say to a client, well, look, um, in your industry, we've, we're not going to name who they are, but some of your competitors are, are making these achievements. Mm. let's say stock they you know they're they've got this stock turn you're way below that you could at a minimum get to the average but there's an opportunity to get even better at it and they've got and the proof points around it so these research or or actual client value discovery exercises that were done after the event you know so the clients bought your software bought your your solution they've achieved success whatever it is six months a year down the line and the value discovery engine or value engineers have gone in at that point 
um, with agreement with a client and actually measured, did you achieve that success and created some value points that can go into this database? And if they do that, they have some really clever tools, which are kind of like what are called move the needle tools, yeah. which is essentially, you know, uh, this, you're above the average for your industry and, you know, competitive sector. The, these measures, you're, you're well below. And there's an opportunity for us to, and, you know, to get down to a really practical thing, like I talked about stock turns or something, you know, you're, you're below, you're holding too much stock for too long. And, um, you know, having to write it off or whatever, you know, competitors are way above that. We can help you get there. Yeah. And I, I think you're 100% right because this whole value engineer thing, if you think what you're trying to achieve, people who buy software and who buy, buy solutions, they're, they're buying outcomes, really. They're, they're buying, uh, they, they, you know, they're, they're not just taking software because they want something new and exciting in the business. They're buying this to achieve a goal. Our job is to figure out what that goal is, what that goal is, is, is worth. And if you looked at buyer enablement and the things we've talking about, actually I'm helping that my advocate, the customer, justify to a board or an investment panel exactly why we should do this. Now, if the numbers stack up in your favor, if it's a case of, okay, for £100,000 investment, we're going to effectively give you £150,000 in any walk of life, whether it's personal business, you're going to take that, right? But there has to be a degree of certainty because if there's a 75% you know, chance of that happening. Well, you take your 150 returns and you multiply it by 0.75 because that's the expected returns. And if they are lower the investment, you're not going to make that investment. Simple as unless there is a critical, critical statutory requirement. I mean, you've got to do that because then it is a net cost and nobody wants a net cost. You want a net gain. So it's just, in my mind, I always have it like a seesaw, you know, the, the whole scales thing, you know, how are we showing more benefit, more outcomes than we are costs going in? And if you're right side of that equation, you're going to do well. And I think that's probably what we're trying to boil down to, isn't it really, Don, is understanding and quantifying the outcomes, you know, industry-led, ask the right questions, understand how certain that outcome is for that customer and understand their processes to make that outcome happen because it's, it's more than just the software now. It's how you implement and, and out of that, you should do well. But I think, I think this is going to be a differentiator over the next few years, especially... In the UK, we're facing Brexit. We have we have listeners in over forty countries. Okay, but people who are in multinational software companies, Brexit's going to be on a lot of people's radars. Not just the UK market. You've obviously got the outcome of the of the pandemic. There's the rise of um, environmental accounting and carbon accounting and things like this. There's so many shifting dynamics around us that this this value engineering philosophy just has to come into what we do. Um, I, I think it's going to be incredibly important. I really do. I, I heard a great expression. Uh, I think I think some SAP guys were talking about this. The uh, was it? You get bottom line, top line, and the green line. I like that. That's a good one. That's yeah. a good one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great one to end on. So <laughs> with that, we've got our, our next episode. We've got a special guest, uh, Thomas yes. Edwards, is coming on. So we're going to chat um, social media and a bit about his modern mm -hmm. SD blog that he's launched, just to kind of break away from, from discovering, get some really good tips um, from Thomas on, on social media and how he built that brand and, and, and what. It's very important point, this uh, the social credibility, you know, yeah. establishing it before you meet people. You know, we're all checking each other out on social and, and you can't now wait until you meet people to, you know, establish some credibility with them, you know, and build rapport. The, you know, people are going to check you out and make decisions about you before you meet them through especially LinkedIn.
Absolutely. And whether you like that or not, that's an important mm. point. You may not like the idea of that, but I'm afraid you can't escape from the fact that that is what people are doing. Absolutely. So I think this is a really exciting one. So, um, so yeah, so like I say, we always say, if you're interested in coming on, you've got something you're passionate about, we are more than happy to have people on the show. So really looking forward to Thomas. So um, that'll be in a couple of weeks' time. That'll be out. So um, everyone, thanks for tuning in again and hope it's useful and keep the feedback coming. So see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,